Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? People within the same racial category of darker skin are subject to even more um, injustice. Um, and this has been shown in various studies, um, may not want to get darker and may not want to participate in the very same ways as their lighter counterparts. And that's something that needs to be addressed, which also is exciting in regards to what that could mean and what addressing that could look like. That could look like including self-love frameworks and dialogues within environmental education because it's addressing the fact that oftentimes white-centric beauty ideals have an impact on how people want to experience being outside. And a lot of times people don't know that's a real thing that a lot of us have to go through and have grown up being told these things. But in order to really dismantle the barriers that exist, you have to address things like that. So for me and my um, education, I want to be able to bring to light these unaddressed barriers and help inform how organizations and folks can be cognizant of implementing that programmically within the way that they're supporting underrepresented people in the outdoors. Oh, wow. I truly had not made that connection of colorism and outdoor recreation. So thank you so, so much for bringing that up and for being so vulnerable. Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. It is so nice to see you a little off schedule. Today, I'm excited to share part two of my conversation with Wanjiku Gatheru Wawa. Wawa joined us on Tuesday and we had an incredible conversation about racism in conservation and the whitewashing of the environmental movement. So if you have not listened to that, I highly suggest you go back and listen to it. It was probably one of the most eye-opening conversations for me personally that I've had on the podcast so far. We covered a lot of topics in that part of the conversation, so if you haven't gone back to listen to it, I definitely recommend you do because there really is something in there for everyone. And the reason the conversations are split and you're getting a special part two, a little off schedule, like I mentioned, is that we transitioned our conversation into the topic of self-love and self-love as environmental education. And this was a conversation that really piqued my interest because Wawa and I have previously spoken about the natural beauty movement, which if you've listened to the podcast before or if you can gauge anything from the topics that I like to cover... I love the natural beauty movement. I think that clean beauty is the future. However, cosmetics and personal care and hair care and all of that as a whole is pretty exclusive. So Wawa and I get into a little bit of the conversation around cosmetics and shade ranges. We talk about hair care and how she learned to care for her hair and love her hair as a black woman. And that was a great conversation. We talk a little bit about wigs. We talk also just about environmental education and environmental racism a little bit more broadly on the community scale. So again, a lot of ground that we cover. So I feel like even calling this a bonus conversation disguises that a little bit. Do not be fooled. This is a value-packed conversation, particularly 
for the women out there who are interested in learning a little bit more about hair care and cosmetics and beauty products and things that women across the board are dealing with on the day-to-day. Even if you're not a big-time beauty person, this is something that we're all interacting with. So it's a great conversation from that lens. And it's also a great conversation to open up this concept of self-love as environmental education. I am a really firm believer in this concept and Wawa does get into it a little bit further, so I'll let her give it to you. She is so eloquent and brilliant and again, so, so thankful to have had her on the show and I hope she comes back. If you enjoyed this episode, tag me on your Instagram story, share it with a friend, rate and review the show. I really appreciate it and it's always nice to know what kind of episodes resonate with you. And also... Follow us on Instagram at EcoChicPodcast. That's primarily where I hang out. But also, I always release little episode previews on Instagram and I give a little snippet of the conversation. But this week, I am introducing this new concept of a little IGTV segment to go along with the episodes. So if you've ever wondered what I look like, what the guests look like, what these conversations look like as they're going down, I am now sharing that on Instagram. So EcoChicPodcast, that's where you can find that. And all of my other links will be down below as well. And with that, let's just jump right in. I am excited to share again this conversation with you with Wanjiku Gatheru Wawa. Here on Eco Chic, we are talking about self-love as environmental education. Hope you enjoy. I really do want to further explore this idea of self-love education and the education around quote unquote, white beauty that a lot of black girls have to come to terms with in a sense. And the last time we spoke, we talked about that really beautiful video of the little girl putting product in her curls and just being like, do you want curls like me? Look at these curls, look at these. And it was just so cute. And her really embracing her natural hair was so, so beautiful. And I would love to talk to you a little bit about the natural beauty movement and the conversations happening around the natural beauty movement, just what it means to be truly embracing your, your heritage, your culture, your background, and all that it is that you are. Like, what does that mean to be truly embracing your natural beauty? Yes, and I, I'm so happy that we're talking about this again because I really believe that environmental work is, is self-love, right? Because when you talk about solving a climate crisis, nobody wants to do this work for the sake of doing this work. There's a reason why. And that why looks like a lot of different things, but when it boi- what it all boils down to is a love for yourself, a love for co- your community, and a fear of what losing that could be. So for me, connecting self-love with regards to natural beauty and in regards to natural hair i'm wearing a protective style right now but in regards to say protecting and taking care of my natural hair and learning what that looks like i'm actually framing that as environmental education and as protecting my temple my body my environment i think it's really important to frame it that way and i think something that i specifically want to do in regards to this new platform that i'm creating with some friends called black girl environmentalist is really exploring what does it mean to take care and love and prioritize your body and yourself as a black woman as a black girl and as a black femme and what does that mean for environmental education one of the big things that we talked about before was how does natural hair and natural hair education fit into environmental work and something that i think that people haven't made the connection with is when the natural hair community emerged on youtube in like 2000 
2009, 2010, and became big and actually had this huge impact on so many Black women and girls finally being able to understand what their curl patterns look like, what their hair looks look like without relaxer or chemicals. Um, that was a huge form of environmental education because the thing is, is that most of us grew up relaxing our hair, putting chemicals in our hair, and being told that our hair was a nuisance is not something that was worth protecting, an environment worth protecting. And what ends up happening in regards to that is that you have a lot of companies and brands specifically orienting toxic chemicals for our hair, and specifically advertising that black and brown women. And in doing that, there are a lot of adverse health impacts that happen and occur after repeatedly using certain toxins in our hair and subjecting that to our skin and our scalp, right? But the connection between the adverse health impacts and how actually getting education, say from YouTube, of one, calling out some of these chemicals, calling out the specific names, calling out the fact that these are environmental hazards, providing that education, saying that it's dangerous, to which a lot of us didn't know it was dangerous, and then providing natural options, options that actually protect your hair and allow it to flourish and allow it to be what it was meant to be. That is such a valid form of environmental education. And not to say that you can't, you know, honor your temple and take care of your hair being relaxed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying having access to that education and having access to the variety of different pathways to which you could honor your temple and having that choice to do so is such an important part of environmental education and should be centered within this natural beauty movement. And I haven't really seen that connection be made yet. Yeah. And I'm also thinking when we're talking about the natural beauty movement, not being nearly as inclusive as it likes to claim to be truly, I think that I also am imagining these corporations, these white centered, if it's white women at the top of these natural beauty brands, they're inherently not being inclusive with things like shade ranges because they don't have people in the room that are advocating for a better shade range. So when we're talking about even cosmetics, you are inherently thinking of just Western white ideals behind cosmetics of Western beauty. And that needs to be massively dismantled because we shouldn't have to educate the people in the room on what America looks like, on what people look like, it's not as though white people are the only people buying makeup. So I'm interested to know a little bit about inclusivity in your mind and inclusivity in the cosmetics industry and how you feel that has kind of shifted. Because when I think about inclusivity and I think about shade ranges, I think of Rihanna. I think of Rihanna really pushing the needle with Fenty Beauty. And and I'd love to hear a little bit just about your thoughts on inclusivity and shade ranges and just everything of the sort. It's so interesting because I feel like even in my lifetime, right, I will obviously, uh, but I would say in the past three years, there's been this huge transition in regards to what was accessible for me in regards to buying makeup. I feel as though growing up, one of the reasons why I actually, I love makeup. It's so much fun for me. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do and it's a part of my daily routine because it kind of wakes me up and lets me prioritize myself from the morning. And it's, it's a part of my self-care um, regimen. But something that I found growing up was 
before I got to college, before I was able to get a job and work and make money for myself, I never really saw makeup as being something that was super accessible to me, not just in regards to the shades that were available, but the fact that darker skin tones that were available in regards to shade variations were often only available for very, very high-end makeup brands. And that was something that I saw with, say, my mom and like going through her makeup and even though we're totally different skin tones, seeing that she was only really buying super high-end makeup, um, not just because it was quote-unquote better quality, which is arguable, but the fact that there wasn't really inclusive skin ranges in drugstore makeup. And the fact that now in the past three years, I'd say in my college career, I've seen this shift. And part of that shift has been through Fenty Beauty and releasing all these different shades. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in regards to not just simply having super dark shades without understanding how undertones impact the way that, say, foundation comes up on our skin. So for me, I don't have a red undertone, I have a yellow undertone. And a lot of times, what ends up happening is that you'll You'll find in a lot of fair tones that are available, even though very, very fair tones are also in this issue in regards to not having a lot of access, but fair tones that are seen as more, that have been historically more centered in makeup brands, you find that there's a lot of honoring of the various undertones that exist, which is great, but you don't necessarily see that translation happening in regards to darker tones. There needs to be a lot more variation of that, not just simply having a dark shade or another dark shade. And, you know, I have been seeing a lot of differences, but there's still work to be done. And also I'm, I'm still on the privileged end of that shade accessibility. I'm still of within the black community, I'm still dark skinned, but I'm of the dark skinned that is seen and validated within the makeup community. And I'm often seen as my skin tone is often on the darker, darker end, when there are people that are far darker than me too, that are then left out as well. So it's not enough just to have my skin tone represented as being the epitome of what dark is. Our shades range so far after this and are beautiful and should be recognized and centered and have those uh, capabilities to wear makeup if we want. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's really important to emphasize that all of these shades are not only necessary, but beautiful. And there is a market for them. There's an audience for them. And as a brand, if you are not having incredibly inclusive shades, you're leaving a lot of people out of the conversation. You're really shortening your market. I mean, even thinking about it from a financial perspective, it's like, come on, wake up. There's so many more people that you could be serving. And I also think it's interesting the point you made about darker shades and more inclusive shades being a little exclusive to high-end makeup, especially up until a few years ago. I think that's also interesting because when we talk about drugstore makeup and even like we were saying with hair products, you have a lot of shady chemicals and shady ingredients in a lot of these lower-end products. And we also know, we're like very well aware in the environmental community that the communities that are neighboring power plants and landfills and all of these other natural environmental hazards that come along with being a part of a society, they're always close to black and brown communities, low income communities, marginalized communities. And it's unfortunate, but it's what environmental racism is. And we can also see that understanding translated 
to products and consumer products. Why is it that we feel as though these high-end or cleaner products and these higher price point products are still almost a little exclusive? Like what is the cultural barrier to that, the financial barrier to that? I don't even think I'm asking this question very well at all. Like I'm talking in circles to myself. I hear you. I think think you're you're asking a lot about choice. Yes, I'm asking a lot about choice, consumer choice, the consumer marketplace. And when it comes to cosmetics and when it comes to hair products, choosing the more natural option isn't even always the correct thing for your situation, for your skin tone, for your hair, for whatever it may be. And this is another issue that I think even goes beyond the, the natural beauty movement and even into the grander sustainability movement in general. Because something that I have often found, and actually I said this recently, um, a lot of people recently have been approaching me in my Instagram DMs, my Twitter DMs and saying, so what do you do in your everyday life to be an environmentalist? What are some tips that you could tell me to inform the way that I live my life every day? I actually do have my tips. I do my things, but I always respond and I'm like, that's not really what I'm here for. Um, And that's not really what I want to be here for because I'm cognizant of the fact that by nature of the privileges that I have that may have not been say 10 years ago, but right now say class privilege is being able to have the ability to make choices that are quote unquote more environmentally friendly. I understand that that is completely bound to access to resources and money and being able to access certain stores and be able to use a certain percentage of my income to make these choices. And I think a lot of times there's a lot of dishonesty in regards to the often unspoken rules of what it means to be a natural beauty advocate, to be an environmental advocate, to be someone who's truly sustainable. And a lot of times the metrics for what makes someone that or not are based off of lifestyle choices that are bound to resources and income and monetary accessibility. And the truth of the matter is, is that the folks that often are least represented or least capable of achieving said metrics cannot because of money and financial barriers. And that often are poor people of color. So it often is dishonest. This is why I said it extends everywhere else is, hey, well, I see a lot of black people using plastic all the time and don't care about the environment because, you know, they they don't use reusable this or that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, this is why. (laughs) This is why people say our movements aren't accessible because they aren't. And the thing is, it's, it's, it's not that having these choices is bad. I think... The goal is for people to have choice and to make choices that are sustainable and make choices that make it difficult to trash our planet. But the connection needs to be made is you have a throwaway planet because we have throwaway people. The minute you don't have throwaway people, you can't have a throwaway planet. So these movements need to be honest about who's able to participate and work from there to make it so that if somebody wants to be sustainable in the ways that you consider sustainability to be, that they can actually achieve that. That is so well said. Wow. Okay. I have a lot of thoughts around cultural barriers, sustainability, and also cultural 
practices of sustainability, I think a lot about uh, just the way that our grandparents lived their lives in general, whatever culture it may be from, you know, 50 years ago, it was a lot more common to buy a glass product or to reuse a container or to just think a little bit deeper about the impact you were having because it was not only a matter of accessibility and resources, but also financial. There was a lot of just availability of a lot of these more quote unquote sustainable elite quote unquote products. So I have a lot of thoughts around that. And I also would love to bring this conversation back around to makeup and cosmetics and the idea that a lot of the accessibility and a lot of the financial barriers to buying these products exist in black and brown communities. I would love to hear a little bit about, I know the last time we spoke, we spoke about wigs and I think wig culture is incredibly interesting as, as a white woman, as someone who does not wear wigs. I think that wig culture is incredibly interesting because there is such a ritual around wigs in the black community. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about some of the experiences you've had with wigs in your life and protective hairstyles and perhaps some of the environmental associations that you may have made with that. Tell me about wigs. Just tell me everything. I want to hear it all. You see, I'm still trying to make those connections in regards to uh, environmentalism, Um, but I'm not there yet because, again, the movement hasn't made those connections before. I've never been taught them, so it's more of kind of finding where I fit in everywhere. But in regards to my experience with wigs, I'm wearing a wig right now. (laughs) Um, I think wigs are a really, really great protective style, especially during winter. I have very, very coarse hair. My, I have 4C, arguably 4Z, which means that some pl- points of my hair can form a curl. Some of them don't. She kind of does what she wants. Um, she um, is on the drier side, low porosity, so, or high porosity. I'm still, my vernacular could be off too. But again, I'm still learning because the truth of the matter is, is I first became natural at 14 from YouTube. And from there, I didn't really know what to do. So I ended up not taking care of it and ended up relaxing it again. And then actually entering what I think is my more authentic natural hair movement um, only like three years ago. So I only really started this at 18, 19. So I've only been learning how to take care of my natural hair for three to four years, which is wild because some people have known how to take care of their hair since birth, since they knew what hair was. Um, So that's why I'm going to blame that on my (laughs) terms maybe being off. But I feel as though we're at this point in time, especially with YouTube and this access of information of the variations of how we could take care of our hair from wearing our natural hair out to wearing protective styles to really honoring our creativity and honoring what works best for our hair and what works best for our time and our pocketbooks because natural hair is, it's, it's a time intensive protection process, right? Because on top of learning, at least I'll speak for myself, on top of still learning, it's the fact that our hair and the products that are um, accessible that um, for our hair and our hair types often are on the more expensive side. Um, Wash day for us can last the whole day. You need to have that time. A wash and go isn't just a wash and go. It takes sometimes hours. I know I've never had a proper one. I'm still working through that. 
But in regards to wigs, this is just a fun, protective style, right? I think it's transitioning to where I think for a long time, wigs for a lot of us may have symbolized, you know, just being more palatable in a white world. And I'm not going to say that that isn't the case for some people, and I can't critique anyone for that. But I think right now, wigs and the variation of protective styles that we use are just a great way to take care of our hair, have fun, be creative, be a different person anytime. Like, Honestly, before this, my natural hair was out. And then I was like, I want to wear this wig for this. And maybe later on, I'll like go take a walk and have my hair out again. It's just fun. I think that's fabulous because you really do embody the idea that like, not only am I beautiful, but I also have this creative vision and I want to express myself in this particular way. And if I have this option, like why not take it if I feel like it? And I think that's awesome. And again, just... I, I'm really intrigued with everything that we've spoken about, and I appreciate you sharing your story and sharing your insights, and I have really had so much fun, so I appreciate it so, so much. Paula, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really, like, can't thank you enough because I've just had, like, such a, such a good afternoon with you. <laughs> Same. It was so great to be able to talk to you today and then a couple days ago. And again, like we're on the same wavelength. We I really, really love it. No, yeah. And um, I'm so excited to be able to listen to this and share it with my friends and family. And thank you so much for inviting me. This oh was my- so much fun. Thank you so, so much.